Good morning. Would you open up in your Bibles with me to Judges chapter 7? My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. We'll be looking at Judges chapter 7 today. You can find that on page 240 in your Pew Bible. Judges chapter 7, page 240. A few weeks ago, I tried something that I hadn't done in uh, a very long time, and it had been so long that I forgot what it felt like, and I honestly couldn't remember the last time that it happened. I shut off my cell phone. I shut off my cell phone, and I just walked up and down Nantasket Beach. I had walked this beach dozens and dozens of times, but I am usually held captive by this little distraction device that's constantly buzzing and chirping and dinging in my pocket with emails and text messages, but this time I didn't want to be distracted, so I didn't bring anything to shove into my ears, and I shut off my phone. I just wanted to see and to hear the beach. And I watched those little sandpipers, the little birds, sprint across the wet sand. I heard people laughing. I stopped for the occasional conversation with a stranger. I watched seagulls dive bomb for their breakfast. And a group of kids run back and forth trying to stay one inch ahead of the incoming waves. Now, this was nothing new. I'd seen it all before, but I became too familiar. And I had become too distracted. And I forgot about the beauty of the beach. I had become completely blind. On that day, I recovered my awe, A-W-E, my awe for the beach. And I didn't think about my problems. I didn't think about my schedule. I didn't really even think about me much at all. I was in awe. We long to be in awe. Human beings long to be amazed, to transcend the ordinary. We want the wow experience, right? to fall in love, to be moved by beautiful art. Skyscrapers or the, the Grand Canyon will blow our minds. We long to have our emotions stirred by beautiful music or have our taste buds invaded with delicious food. We long for awe because we were designed for it. We were designed by God, created in his image for worship. Now, when I say worship, we likely think of activities like singing or praying or reading our Bible, some kind of activity, and hopefully those are worshipful. But worship is more than activities. Worship is what grabs our attention and holds our passion. To, uh, to worship something is to uh, give it ultimate worth and value. Worship actually comes from the idea of worth. To worship something is to find our hope and our satisfaction in it. So although we typically think of worship as something we do for God, it's, it's more fundamentally where we find our hope and our joy and our satisfaction. And like I grew too familiar with the beach, we can grow too familiar, even bored, with God. We can lose our awe of God. And it's one of the greatest dangers that we face because when we lose our awe of God, we will replace it with something else. We cannot help but worship. We are created to do it. We, to be human is to worship. 
So if we lose our awe of God, we will quickly replace it with something else. And for you, it could be a number of different things. You might find uh, the satisfaction that only God can provide in your career or your possessions or your status. You might require and demand people in your life to be for you what only God can be. You might become so gripped by the approval of other people, you'll become enslaved to the social media world and you, your convictions and your, your beliefs will ebb and flow to the rhythm of the changing culture. Because when we lose our awe of God, we will look for it in things that can't deliver and drive down dead-end streets and search for lasting joy. So if you want to know the best way to ruin a good thing, just ask it to be for you what only God can be. When we replace God with other things, even good things, we can make a mess of our lives while we remain completely blind to the fact that the thing we are looking to satisfy us is destroying us. So the Christian life is really a battle to be in awe of God. If you think the Christian life is just to try really, really hard to keep all the rules, it's not that you've missed the bullseye. You are aiming in the wrong direction at the wrong target. The Christian life is about finding our ultimate joy in him, in a person who can never disappoint, who will never let you down, who is trustworthy, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we are in awe of him, obeying him can feel as natural as a mother's love for her child. If we want to live for Jesus, we must start with worship. So in the passage today, we find a man who is like you and he's like me. He is a person who is ruled by what he worships. His name is Gideon. And we see in his life an example of what can happen when we are in awe of God and when we are not. We are encouraged by his life. He does incredible things for the Lord. But we're also warned. We are warned and sobered by the destruction that he leaves in his wake when something else captures his awe and steals his worship. Well, it's a long passage. It's two chapters. So we're not going to cover everything. We won't even uh, read everything, and, and that's okay. And since it's so long, I just want to simplify it for you. Here's the main point of chapter 7. Main point of chapter 7, the Lord confronts us with incredible odds to protect our worship. Main point of chapter 8, worship of other things leads to unfaithfulness and failure. Well, let's start with the encouragements. Let's look at Judges chapter 7, verse 1. Read with me. Early in the morning, Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moriah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. Announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water. 
and I will sift them for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tent, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Let's stop there. So the battle lines are drawn. You have the armies of Israel up on the hill, and then you have the armies of Midian and a few of their buddies down in the valley. The Midianites, you'll remember from two weeks ago when we covered chapter 6, have been oppressing the Israelites. They had been stealing all their livestock, stealing all their crops. Israel is literally starving to death. And now it's time to rise up. And after we read verse 1, we think the battle's about to begin, but the Lord intervenes. Now, Gideon probably thinks that the Lord is intervening for a little bit of a pep rally to do some cheerleading, because if you remember back in chapter 6, that's what he is used to. He is used to God showing up on the scene to offer uh, a lot of encouragement, to um, give him whatever he wanted as far as signs and proofs, but that's not what the Lord does here. He does something that must have felt very strange to Gideon. He shrinks the army. First, he tells Gideon to tell the people, if anyone is afraid that they can just leave the battlefield, and 22,000 tuck tail and leave. Now, we learned later on there were about 135,000 Midianites and only 32,000 Israelites to begin with. Now we're down to 10,000. But the Lord says, verse 4, nope, still too many. So he does more strange things. He has Gideon bring his army down to the brook and observe their drinking habits. 300 men, they kneel down, they bring, they cup the water in their hands, they bring it up to their mouth, and they politely and neatly drink it just like their mama told them. The vast majority of the army shove their face into the water and Slurp it up like dogs. And the Lord says, Gideon, you can have the 300 men because what you definitely want to bring to an army are guys who know how to drink politely, right? (laughs) But there's his army. Put yourself in Gideon's shoes. He never wanted to be the leader of Israel's army. It took almost the entirety of chapter 6 for him to work up the nerve to even ask people to join the army. And now that they finally have joined his army, the Lord sends most of them home. What's going on? Well, back up to verse 2. In verse 2 is really the key to understanding this whole chapter. Let me read it again. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength saved her. Because the Lord knew their hearts. He knew that even if they won this battle with 32,000, it would only lead them to being impressed with themselves. And the Lord knew that a much greater danger than Midian 
than the Midianites existed, and that was the danger inside their own hearts that would move them to trust in themselves. And so God used this trial as a discipleship moment to teach the whole nation that on this day, it would be God and God alone who would rescue his people from this mess. God protects us from shifting our awe away from him. God will allow and use seemingly impossible odds and obstacles to keep us from trusting in ourselves. And if you're anything like me, then you are going to daydream about a carefree, risk-free, comfortable life. But here's the problem with that. That when my life is on cruise control, or at least I think it is, and I think I have everything figured out, my awe of God fades, and I quickly replace him with other things. So if you are here this morning, and you're in the middle of a difficulty, and as a result, you are feeling dependent on the Lord and needy. Although it's not easy, he has you in a very safe place. And although it's counterintuitive, it's those of us in this room today who are feeling confident and in control, who are in serious danger of losing their awe. It is far better for us to be in a place where we feel our need for the Lord to have a comfortable life. And I push back on this all the time. Lord, why are you doing this? How am I going to get out of this difficulty? Rescue me. When in reality, the difficulty is likely the very thing the Lord is using to rescue me. He's keeping my wandering heart fixed on him. So we must learn to interpret the daily reminders of our need for God as his fatherly care for us, that he is doing the necessary work of protecting us from going down dead-end streets in the search for things that will never satisfy us and will never give us the security that we so desire. And if the Lord, if you're feeling like the Lord has shrunk your army down to a measly 300 this morning, if it's always two steps forward and one step back. He's not punishing you. He's not getting his pound of flesh. He's caring for you. He's protecting your awe. Well, let's look at how the Lord helped Gideon recapture his awe. Let's continue the story. Second half of verse 8 says, Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During the night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up and go against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. But if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant, Purah, and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Purah, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites and the Amalekites and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand of the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. 
His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. And when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped God. Gideon had his army. Gideon had the promise of victory, but there was one thing that the Lord knew that Gideon lacked, and it was a non-negotiable, absolutely essential if he were to face this trial the right way. Gideon lacked worship. And this little section here that I just read is one of the sweetest and most encouraging sections in an otherwise pretty grim book. And I think it is the high point of Gideon's life. Let's look at a few things. First, the Lord knows Gideon is afraid, and so he provides Gideon with what he needs to face the trial. Look at verse 10. If you are afraid, the Lord said to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Purah and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. He doesn't say, Gideon, listen, I, uh, I've been really patient with I've been um, overly kind. I've done everything you've asked me to do, and now it's time for you to do what I'm asking you to do. So go down and fight. That's not what the Lord says. The Lord, ever patient, says, Gideon, I know you're afraid, so I'm going to show you something. Coworkers getting laid off left and right. You're completely out of answers uh, what to do with that difficult child. Living paycheck to paycheck, battling an addiction, and the pull is just getting stronger. All you feel at the moment is crippling loneliness. And you feel like your marriage is just on a collision course. You are weak, tired, at the complete end of yourself. Brothers and sisters, the Lord sees, he knows, and he cares for you. And we know that's true because he took the first step toward Gideon. It was at this moment in Gideon's life, at this low point, where he was just clothed in the reality of his weakness that he met with his God. And he didn't meet with God up on the mountaintop. And he didn't meet with God in the safety and the security of his home. The Lord sent him down into the valley, into the thick of the trial. And it was there where Gideon eavesdrops on a dream between two Midianite soldiers. And it's a strange dream about a loaf of bread that comes rolling down a hill and flattens a tent. Now, I've had a lot of stale stale dinner rolls in my life, but not a one could knock over a pop-up, never mind an army tent built by a tribe of desert warriors. So what is going on with this dream? The Lord's army, though it appears as weak and pathetic as a loaf of bread in the hand of God Almighty, will destroy the tents of Midian. And when he hears this dream, what happens in Gideon's heart? Verse 15, he worshiped God. In the valley, Gideon learned the lesson that we all must learn, that Our personal weakness is not the barrier to what God has called us to do, but the path to truth strength. Because 
In the words of J.I. Packer, the weaker we feel, the harder we lean on God. And the harder we lean, the stronger we grow. Like Gideon, we meet God at the end of ourselves. We meet God uh, most clearly. We see him most clearly when we are in the valley, in the thick of the trial. And we live with fears and doubts all the way to the bottom. But God, in his patience and his wisdom and fatherly love and care, knows that the safest place for us to be, though we feel as strong as bread, is in the valley with a heart captivated by the glory and the majesty and the faithfulness of our God. Worship of God, it puts everything in perspective. When individuals and churches are are captivated by a biblical vision of God, we actually start to live like nothing is impossible for him. Risk doesn't enter the equation. Fear evaporates. We are safe, we are loved, we are called, and we are sent. Our little accomplishments and our possessions and the approval of others seems laughably petty. And the dreams that we have for the lives that we want seem boring and bland. But a life lived of sacrificial service for the good of others seems thrilling and just so right. All the, all the, the trials and the difficulties no longer seem like insurmountable walls that cripple us. But the means through which God will be glorified and honored in our lives of obedience when we are captivated by God, we can say with the Apostle Paul that in everything we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. As I was preparing this sermon, there were times where I would just stop and I would just pray that the Lord would give us here at South Shore Baptist Church a fresh awe of God, which is a real prayer now that it's summer. We need a fresh awe of God even in the summer, that I pray that we would treasure Christ, that our outreach and our missions, it would be fueled by a desire to see Jesus receiving the worship he deserves, that we would be moved by, for genuine love for our neighbors, that we would gladly give of our time and our money for the sake of the poor and the spread of the gospel. A worship-saturated church is a mighty tool in the hand of God. So we talk here every once in a while about how New England is only 3% Bible-believing Christian, which seems depressing sometimes. But you know what 3% is? Well, it's going to appear about as strong as a loaf of bread but in the hand of God. It is a mighty tool of grace and truth, and we have nothing to fear. See, worship always leads to mission, and that's what happens with Gideon. So we get to see now how worship changed this man. Let's look at verse 15. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped God. 
he returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the 300 with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hand and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their sword, and the army fled. Gideon is no longer looking at the odds. He's in too much awe to care about those. And through his faithfulness, it was the Lord who defeated the Midianites with trumpets and jars. The armies of Midian woke up in the middle of the night to the sights and the sounds of the 300 and thought they had been invaded by a much larger army. And in their confusion and waking from slumber, they grabbed their swords, swinging anything that moves as they hightail it out of the valley. Chapter 7 ends with Gideon calling back the armies of Israel who chase after the scattered Midianite army, and there was a decisive victory that day, but it first started with worship. I wish that Gideon's story ended with chapter 7 for his sake, but the one who was an encouragement to us as we turn the page to chapter 8 now serves as a warning. He serves as a warning of what can happen when we lose our awe of God. And these two chapters are placed side by side to show us how a subtle shift away from the Lord can uh, absolutely change everything. And before we dig in, uh, I want to just remind you of two things, because they're relevant to this chapter, two things that the Lord called Gideon to do. He called Gideon to... Free the people from idolatry, from worshiping the gods around them. Two, he called Gideon to free the people from their Midianite oppressors. So in chapter 6, he begins to free the people from idolatry. In chapter 7, he frees them from the oppressors. But in chapter 8, he undoes all the good that he did in his life. And very sadly, Gideon, becomes the oppressor of Israel. And Gideon leads Israel away from true worship. So here's the warning. We're going to look at two warnings. Warning number one, when we are in awe of God, when we are in awe of something else other than God, we can become people we no longer recognize. There are a lot of um, faces and places in chapter 8, and I don't want to lose you, so here's a quick summary of this story. Gideon and his 300 
are chasing after the scattered armies of Midian. And they're chasing after two kings in particular named Ziba and Zalmunna, which could actually serve as some new trendy celebrity baby names. Um, Ziba and Zalmunna. But these aren't just regular Midianite kings. These two kings are responsible for the murder of Gideon's brothers earlier in Gideon's life. We learn that in chapter 8. And so this all of a sudden becomes very personal for him, and the whole chapter has the smell of revenge. On his way to track down these two kings and exact his revenge, he passes through two Israelite towns named Succoth and Peniel. And he asks the people of these towns for water and food for his army, and the people refuse, and this just ignites Gideon. It just makes him furious. And when I first read this, I thought, you know, how dare these people not just give him a little food and water? After all, this is the Lord's called servant to defeat their oppressors. But then I remembered that these people had been living for years in poverty and fear because of the Midianites. And it's clear from the story that Ziba and Zalmuda and their much larger army had already passed through these towns earlier. And so they're a little cautious about taking sides. And we would think that Gideon, of all people, would have some compassion on these fearful people of Succoth and Peniel because Gideon is a man who's battled fear his whole life. The Lord has been so patient with Gideon, you'd think that he would be able to extend that same grace to these poor people, but he doesn't. A change has taken place in Gideon, and it's not a good one. So although Gideon gets his revenge on these two kings, it comes at great cost. Revenge and power grip his heart and fill it so that there's no more room for God. And the one called by God to save the people from oppression becomes the oppressor. So let's pick up the story at chapter 8, verse 13. This is after Gideon has got his revenge, and now he is returning to these two towns that refuse to support him. Verse 13. Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle by the pass of Harris. He caught a young man of Succoth and questioned him, and the young man wrote down for him the names of the 77 officials of Succoth, the elders of the town. Then Gideon came and said to the men of Succoth, Here are Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me by saying, Do you already have the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your exhausted men? He took the elders of the town and taught the men of Succoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. He also pulled down the tower of Peniel and killed the men, and killed the men of the, city, of the town. What has happened to the Gideon that we have come to know and love? What, what has happened to this man? He tortures and kills Israelites. His success, his power, his hunger for revenge, his reputation as Gideon the mighty warrior went right to his head. And now the only thing that mattered to Gideon was Gideon. Now this might seem to you like an extreme, extreme case of someone obsessed with getting 
their own way. But before we write this off as having no application for us today, let me just ask a few questions. Who here hasn't been driven by selfish desires? Who here hasn't been controlled by our anger? Who here hasn't done embarrassing and horrible things because we wanted what we wanted? Who here hasn't abused what little power they had? You want a quiet and peaceful evening at home after a long, stressful day at work. And as you crawl down I-95, caught in traffic, the only thing you can think about is your recliner. But here's the problem. You live with other people. And so when you get home, you don't find peace and quiet. You find chaos and noise, and you absolutely lose it on your children. Listen, we are not in awe of God in that moment. You slander your coworker to get a promotion. You hoard all your money to accumulate things for yourself. You hide your Christianity to save your reputation. You date someone you know will lead you away from Christ. You walk down the dark alleys of the internet after a worship service. You scream at your parents or your spouse 10 minutes after reading about God's patience. You sacrifice your family, family on the altar of your career. We are not in awe of God in these moments. So we might look down our nose at Gideon in chapter 8. But each person in this room and the person in this pulpit is capable of Jekyll and Hyde Christianity. So perhaps the only difference between Gideon and me is that I don't have a personal army of 300 at my beck and call to make sure I get with my little heart desires. It's a warning, and it's humbling. Uh, One more thing before we move on to the next warning. One more thing. Some of you have experienced very serious and real injustice. People have done horrible things to you or someone you love. It was not right for these two kings to murder Gideon's brothers. That was wrong. But be careful, because by nursing the pain of the past, you can quickly become enslaved to bitterness. And bitterness can turn into hateful, violent revenge like that. And before you know it, you've become almost as bad as the person who hurt you. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The God who meets us in the valley is more than capable to sort out the wrongs that have been done to us. And he is more than capable to change us so that we respond in the right way. There's warning number one. When we are in awe of something else other than God, we can become people we no longer recognize. Here's the the last warning and the last thing we'll look at. A Christianity without awe of God can appear religious but lead to spiritual disaster. Let's look at verse 22 of chapter 8. The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. 
But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment, and each man threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels. It's about 43 pounds. Not counting the ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod and placed it in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land enjoyed peace 40 years. Jerubbabel, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son, whom he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah, the son of the Abrezrite. No sooner did Gideon die than the Israelites again prostitute themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Berith as their God and did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. So when I first read this section and I read verse 23, I got excited because it appears that Gideon was getting back on track, right? He says, I won't be your king. The Lord is your king and he's going to rule over you. But as soon as he said that, he said, but I do have one request. How about I have some of that gold? Gideon refuses to be their king, but then he starts acting like their king. And we know this because if you wanted to establish a royal dynasty in those days, here's what you would do. You would accumulate for yourself gold spoils from the war to build up a treasury. You would have many sons to secure a royal line and a dynasty, and then you would likely name one of your sons as the heir to your throne. Well, Gideon has this son named Abimelech, and we'll see next week that this man uh, wreaks havoc on the people of Israel. He's the only son out of Gideon's 70 sons that's named, and guess what Abimelech means in Hebrew? My father, the king. So, one side of his mouth, he says, the Lord's your king. And then the next side of his mouth, he names his, one of his son's daddy's favorite little prince. He said all the right things, but it was mere lip service. He only appears to be religious, but his heart is not ruled by worship of God. He does something even worse. Verse 27, he takes this gold and he makes a golden ephod. An ephod was the garment, the outfit for the high priest, the man the Lord set apart to lead the, the people of God spiritually. He takes this ephod, he takes the gold, he makes an idol. The man called to free the people from idolatry takes gold and makes an idol out of a garment made for the high priest, and Gideon's town is filled with worshipers. 
of the tabernacle remains empty. And after his life, when he dies, no spiritual reform, the people go right back to worshiping the gods of the culture around them. Pure is religious. No awe of God. Spiritual disaster for the people God had called him to serve. So I am warned. Frankly, I'm frightened by the end of his life because it's so easy to fake it. It's so easy to appear religious and to play church, to come here and to sing some songs and shake some hands and then live Monday to Saturday like Jesus never walked out of that grave. And we need to listen to that because Jesus had some strong words for the religious hypocrites of his day. He said, these people worship me with their mouth, but their hearts are far from me. And if we're not careful, worship of our God can become as routine as wheeling out our trash barrels to the side of the road for the Tuesday morning pickup. So if you're realizing right now that this has been you, that you've lost your awe of God, that you've been worshiping other things, that you've grown too familiar and too distracted. Well, there's good news for you. And if you're not a Christian, there is good news for you too. Because through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can know the forgiveness and the joy and the acceptance of God. And there are no religious hoops that you have to jump through. And you don't have to try to clean yourself up. You just turn from doing life your way and trust in Christ. Jesus told a story about a young man. A young man who left the security and the safety of his loving father in search of a life that he thought would be more fulfilling and enjoyable. And though it was enjoyable in the moment. Before long, he, thought, he realized that he was empty and lonely and poor. And the best thing that he could do was find a job feeding pigs. After a while, he realized that even these pigs had it better off than he did. And he missed his father. He missed home. And so he worked up the nerve, though he was humbled and embarrassed, to go home, and he, he thought, okay, my father may not accept me, but at least he might let me be a servant in his household. And as the man walked home with his head down, his father saw him from a distance. And he didn't wait for his son to stumble home, but he sprinted out to the road to meet his son, and he hugged him, and he kissed him. The son said, Father, I have sinned against you, and I am not worthy to be called your son. But with the eyes of love and compassion, his father looked at his son and said, let's have a feast and celebrate, because this son of mine who was lost is now found. And the young man's heart was full. He was in awe of the love of his father who could love someone who was so foolish to leave home 
for something that could never satisfy. Well, this is how our Father in Heaven treats us, His children who have lost our awe. And though we come embarrassed and feeling unworthy with our heads down, His grace fills our heart with worship and lifts our head. Come to Him today. Let's pray. Our Father, we are prone to wander. We feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. So right now, take our hearts and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. Amen. Well, now we have the privilege to come at the conclusion of this service to the Lord's table. It's a time to pause and to remember the new covenant.